welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Oh my God. Just try to get my try to get my energy up. Try to get my energy up. Sometimes we record this and it's like, oh, welcome to our analysis. And you're kind of sleepy today too, so you're making me sleepy. Do you know that on the weekends when I do WXXI, I I sometimes run around the office because like no one's in the office and I need to like wake up because it's so early. Anyway, this week, Marianne will be speaking with Faraz Harsini and buckle up because you're going to love this interview. Faraz is a scientist and works at the Good Food Institute and is a thoroughly lovely guy. But most of all, he will be talking with Marianne about Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, which is a new organization he has founded and is a totally brilliant idea, by the way, to build animal advocacy on campuses all over the country. I love hearing that that's a thing because sometimes I just feel like that kind of a track is gone. And, you know, that's very narrow thinking on my part. Gone? Why would, like, I'm not sure it's ever been there. Well, animal advocacy, just in general, there's animal rights groups. I've certainly, back in the day, spoken to many animal rights groups at colleges, but I feel like that was a very 10 years ago kind of thing. Well, it it wasn't that it's 10 years ago. As you'll learn when you listen to this interview, it's that it pops up on every campus when you have somebody with that drive and ambition and, and the just need to do something, and then they graduate. And that's, that's what's brilliant about this whole idea. Faraz is brilliant. In the first place, the acronym for his organization, Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, is ASAP. How good is that? It's ASAP. Anyway, uh, so he's, he's brilliant, but it, he's also, it, this, is a, this is just a missing piece. Advocacy in colleges is so important, but you know, it totally depends on who happens to be there at the time. And that's what he, well, I don't want to give everything away. Just listen to the interview. You're going to love it. He's so okay. nice. I really like him. Good. Uh, I can't wait. I have to say, this article that you sent me from The Guardian has the most disgusting name, Pale and Gelatinous. Oh. And then it says, I tried vegan seafood so that you don't have to, but like... Yeah, I don't, I don't really know why we're talking about this article, to be honest, because it's kind of depressing. It's kind of depressing. It's just, you know, it's one of these articles by this woman, Megan Mayhew Bergman, and it's... It's all about like it's just so annoying. It's it's all about how she she gets it. She gets it that you know the climate. She gets it about everything. Yet she writes this whole article about the, these vegan scallops that she tried, which she probably didn't cook very well, and they were they weren't good. Like what is the what? Why do people do this? What is the point? It's really hard for people to get articles published, and I don't understand why editors are accepting these terrible pitches, except all I can say is... Well, I think because they want to, that's what they want to hear. They want to hear that it's not very good, so they don't really have to eat it. I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of. This is The Guardian. I mean, yeah. you know, they're more open to vegan stories than anybody. I mean, there's lots of good information in here, and maybe it's helpful that starting off like insulting vegan food because then people are more likely to read it. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Have I told you that? That I just don't know anything anymore. You've mentioned it a couple of times, but I think you know a lot. I mean, it's like you, on one hand, you know, you know a lot. And on the other hand, you feel like, you know, absolutely nothing. I don't even know what that meant. Well, it, it, well, yeah, go ahead. The way I've been thinking about it 
I mean, the reason I'm saying I don't know anything, of course, I still know stuff. I mean, I know stuff that I've, you know, I, there's stuff that I know. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I have not yet forgotten everything. But I feel like I'm living two lives, parallel lives. On the one hand, I'm stressed out about all the usual things I'm stressed out about, about work and about school and about Trump and about, uh, I don't know, things I have to do and what am I going to have for dinner and like life, you know? And, you know, the bigger things, all the things that are happening to animals, like it's there all the time, but that's my regular life. And then there's this completely other track and my tracks don't really communicate with each other very much. That is terrified about what's happening with the climate. I mean, every day there's just more and more and more news about things that are falling apart. And and I have no idea how bad it is because nobody seems all that worried. And, and some people seem extremely worried. And so I, I feel like my whole life is operating on two tracks. And it's only when I start to like plan something for the future that if it's in regular world, you know, I can plan things for the future. And if it's in climate world, I'm like, well, you know, uh, who knows what's going to, what the world is going to look like. And does anybody else do this or am I the only one? I have to say, first, I want to say thank you for wording it that way, because it's a little bananas what you're describing, but it's like a bananas that I think we all need to hear because it's normalizing something and it's articulating something that, of course, a lot of us feel. I mean, what you're also sort of describing is cognitive dissonance, which you're more aware of than your average Joe. So like my guess is, for example, I have really good friends who want to have a baby and they're, they know very much what's going on with the climate. And it's, I'm not saying like, I, I'm just, I, I'm just saying that they haven't really articulated how they can on one hand be so concerned about the climate on, on the other hand, want to have a baby. I'm saying that maybe they would feel like a lot of people feel, oh, my baby will be this great climate. My baby will be Greta. What's her name? Uh, who will save the world but they haven't even articulated it. They they don't want to think about it. So their two minds are very separate. Yours, you, mine, col- you're mine the common- collide with each other more, yes. I admit. And I do, to the extent that, it's kind of like being vegan. Like like I, I insulated the house and, and I made, you know, got electric stuff instead of gas. And I'm planning on buying an electric car. I haven't gotten to that point yet. So those things are kind of like being vegan. At least you're not participating in and in, in contributing. But what else is one supposed to do? Wait, I have to say, you know how I just said Greta, what's her name? I yeah. honest to God was going to say Greta Garbo. And I was like, that is not right. I was trying to think of the name of that woman who, who's making the Barbie movie. That's the Greta I thought. Of. Greta Gerwin, is that her name? Yeah, but yes. But so it's, why could, why are we not thinking of Greta's name? It's Greta Thunberg. Like, what's wrong with us? Uh, I think we're There's just... There's a lot of Greta's no. out there. It's Greta Gerwig. Gerwig, is that's it. Thinking. That's it. Yeah. Greta Garbo, Greta Gerwig, Greta Thunberg. Yes, and, and probably most people's babies will not be any of those people. You haven't seen the Barbie movie yet, have you? It hasn't come out yet. I'm dying oh, to see it. Right. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, us and everyone else in the world. See, we're common. We're just ordinary folk who want to see every who want to see Barbie. Anyway, you mentioned an electric car, and we just went to. I went with you because I I have an electric car. I went to look. Yeah, I went with you to look today, and I think you're going to wind up probably get it, getting the same lease as the lease that I have, which is the Kia EV6. 
And when we were chatting with the guy, uh, he he was saying something about the guy, the guy, the dude, the salesperson. Who did happen to be a guy. His name was George, which is my dog's name. And I considered that a good omen. Yeah, right. I digress. (laughs) When we were chatting with him, I almost said, that's my dog's name, but I didn't. (laughs) But he was saying like, you know, the tide has turned. And I was like, no, the tide has risen, dude. We were talking about, I think the guy mentioned that that it it boggles my mind that people are still buying uh, gas powered cars. And he made the point which is very fair. He said a lot for a lot of people, it's money. The electric cars are still more expensive than the lowest end gas powered cars, which is ridiculous. That should not be the way it is. But yeah, go on. Yeah. So anyway, he, he was like, you know, as the infrastructure is being built out and as there's more and more electric cars and uh, people are going to be able to afford them or the cost is going to go down. Yeah. He basically was making the point that it's a done deal. It's just a matter of time. Like the the industry uh, has decided and the the market has decided and the tide is in the process of turning and nothing can turn it back. That was what he was saying. Which is awesome. But in my head, I may, I decided to create a fake scenario in my head where he was talking about veganism. And um, <laughs> and I then I was thinking, should I tell him we're vegan? And I decided not to. But I think it. that's a great way. I think that is how we should talk about veganism. Yeah, because I was convinced he probably is talking through his hat. What do I? What does George know? Uh, no. But you know, it was very convincing to me. I sort of trusted George, which I'm sure makes me like a naive person because you yeah, know, I don't know. He's a car salesman. I'm I know. Sure he's, you know, I'm not saying he's a bad person, but you know, come on. Well, right. But he was really passionate about electric cars. And I felt like I would tell him my problems, my life problems, and maybe he would have. And, and that could have had something to do with the fact that I was there to buy an electric car. I'm just saying, it's not that I don't trust George, <laughs> but. <laughs> I was such a bad person for you to bring. Like, totally. I, You're like a salesman's dream. I, That's what my mother used to call my aunt. She said, your aunt Eileen, she's a salesman's dream. Yeah. I was like, at one point, at one point, I, at one point I said, the car you're trading in isn't going to be worth hardly anything. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you're like, really so useful. <laughs> I should not be ever brought, ever, for when people are buying cars. No, it was ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, so the, I I just want to go back to the two track thinking because it really resonated with me when you were talking about it, because I feel like that, too. And, I, you know, I do think it is maybe a little more surface for you, like it's right there for you. I think that's why you are very like haunted frequently by this world, whereas I can just like turn on the show high school. My repression tactics aren't as good as, as most people's. Yeah, I'll, I'll like put on the show high school, which is about Sarah and Tegan's memoir. No, I do that too. Like I, I live distracted most of the time. Thank God. Yeah. All right. Well, keep us posted about the electric. I mean, I'll know, but keep everyone else posted about it. And uh, let's I think we should get to our interview. Like he makes so much more sense than you, either you or I. So let's yeah, let's move on. Dr. Faraz Hersini makes a lot more sense than Marianne or myself. (laughs) He is the founder of the Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, 
ASAP, a nonprofit organization that supports students who are interested in advocating for animal protection and pursuing careers that can make a difference. He's also a bioprocessing senior scientist at Good Food Institute, where he works on advancing scientific and technological methods to produce alternative proteins on a large scale. Additionally, Dr. Harsini collaborates with organizations like PCRM to promote alternatives to animal testing and to combat animal exploitation. He will be joining Marianne right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Faraz. Thank you so much for having me. I know that your audience uh, is both vegans and non-vegans, and I really hope that both crowds can find what I say helpful, but I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Oh, we're, we're very honored to have you. I have lots of things I want to talk to you. I would say most of the people out there are probably vegan. We're, we're a pretty passionate lot. Uh, we won't focus on turning people vegan, but I definitely want to focus on the amazing work you're doing in universities because I think it's unique and greatly needed. And there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but let's start with that. It's called Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, which means that the acronym is ASAP, which is such a great acronym. <laughs> Congratulations on thinking of that. That's really good because we need to do this ASAP, that's for sure. And it just seems to fill this very needed gap in the organizational structure of the movement. You know, you kind of don't realize there's something missing until somebody fills it. Tell us about ASAP and its mission. But exactly about uh, what we were just talking about, yes, maybe there is a lot of vegans around, but really our goal should be having motivated vegans who can speak up and they're trained to either use their voice or go out there, use their careers to change the system. So when we are talking about animal advocacy, there is always like a challenge, right? Should we focus on the system or should we change on individuals? And I don't think that we should focus on either of them as an individual. Uh, we can do both. So with ASAP, what we are trying to do is to organize, unify, and structure animal rights movement in universities. So what I really want to see is a strong, unified, organized, and sustainable animal advocacy in universities. What that really means in simple words is I'm just so sick of animal rights organizations, student organizations, becoming inactive because of lack of support, lack of uh, infrastructure, lack of mentorship. And you really think about any other student organization that is active and effective, and you realize that they are always on campus. They have a very unified structure. For instance, the Federalist Society, whether you, whether, <laughs> yeah. whether you like... <laughs> Talk about active. <laughs> yeah. Whether you like what they do or not, they are active, right? Right now, six of Supreme Justices are affiliated with uh, Federalist Society, and they've been doing that for only 40 years. So not that long, but they are very active and they have that support. So our goal is to bring this support and mentorship and have a sustainable animal rights advocacy in every college campus. 
I think this is so desperately needed, as I said before. And I mean, the added problem for university organizations is that people come and people go, people come and people go. Like you have to have a really strong structure to withstand the fact that you might have a great leader one day, but then they graduate and you have to structure to constantly rebuild. Yeah, that's absolutely the problem. So when I say we want a sustainable animal advocacy movement in campuses, that's exactly what we mean. Because every two or three years, you have a student who's active, they do something, then they graduate and everything dies down. And that just slows us down. So basically, the way we are approaching it is with three areas. We focus on three areas. One is outreach. The other one is education and empowerment. And third one is by working with dining halls to go plant-based and make veganism more accessible for everybody. But I also want to really emphasize on the first and second one. Outreach is so important because without outreach, we can't really get new vegans and student organizations just fall apart. So ASAP chapter is the goal is to have a chapter in top 100 universities in the U.S. And they're all are going to be called ASAP chapters. They're going to be registered student organizations within the university. And the way they're going to do advocacy is going to be consistent throughout the entire country. And so outreach is to make new vegans, is to reach out to a lot of other vegans who just, you know, when you're talking about this, you're talking about a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds who just became vegan. They don't know anything about advocacy. They might be very isolated. They don't have the support, right? A lot of them go back to not being vegan just because they don't have that community. So we really want to reach out to them first. And then second is education and empowerment. So that's both to bring something like plant-based nutrition to medical schools, to talk about the environment, uh, climate, to all the students, but also train and what I generally say, activate vegans. So a lot of vegans, you know, they, they look at it as a diet. Uh, they just became vegan. They don't have this sense of urgency. So our goal here is to show that they can take whatever they're interested in, such as their passion for whatever they're studying, and use that in animal advocacy. So choose careers that long-term change the system with our support. So that's why education and empowerment is very important. All I say is that we know that there is tons of vegans in every university, except that they don't know each other. There is no community. Exactly. We want to bring everyone together and train them. I can't tell you how much I love this idea. So you anticipate this being each university would have a university-wide organization, and then maybe there would be sub-chapters within different graduate schools or, or in the undergraduate school, and then, but they would all be somehow tied together? Uh, it's going to be basically one ASAP chapter per university or college. So and kind of an example of that is uh, ALDF, which I have a lot of respect for, but they're just focused on law schools, right? Um, right. They're just law schools. Yeah. yeah. So, But this is going to be university-wide chapter uh, right. for undergrads and graduate students and pretty much everybody. But it's going to be one chapter for all the students. But the idea is that this chapter does the exact same thing as any other chapter in the country. So just to give you an analogy, right now, the animal advocacy movement in university, imagine like a band made of a couple of musicians. They are out of tune. Uh, they are out of rhythm. Everyone is playing a different song. There is no conductor. 
and they're not trained, right? They're just figuring out how to play by themselves. But think about an effective band, which is like a symphony orchestra. Musicians are trained. There is a good conductor that organizes everything, right? So that's how they're effective. And that's the structure that we think is lacking. I'm an adjunct professor, and I teach at Cornell, which is a school that has an unbelievable number of, of graduate schools. It's like thousands. I don't know. There's so many of them. But at the same time, like, I, I just want to tell this story. Like this year, I, I teach a course in the law school, Animal Advocacy, and I had two students who sort of unofficially audited it who were at the business school. They weren't allowed to take my course officially. And they said there was nothing at the business school. And so they wanted to take my course because they want to go into an animal-friendly business, a food business, and they found so little support. This is immediately what I thought of when I started reading what your organization was about. They had to kind of sneak into my class to just take it. And it, it was ridiculous. And I had students who were passionate vegans. There was no real interaction between them and these other students. And it just seemed like this organization could really help rectify that. And, and I'm also thinking like if, if students at the law school wanted to put together a program, they would be so helped if they could get the resources of the animal-friendly person at the vet school who could come and talk, or if the animal-friendly folks at the vet school wanted to find out more about what's going on legally for vets and how can, you know, th th they can cross-pollinate each other. It just seems so important. Well, I'm just talking, <laughs> it's not about yours. I, and I, I really want to get into a few more specifics on the three areas that you mentioned. You mentioned some of the specifics, but I want to know more about what these activities would be. So, all right, your ASAP chapter has been set up for a while. It's very established. There's lots of students involved. What kind of programs are going on at this university that are enabled because it's there? It may, let's start with education and empowerment. I assume that would have a lot to do with setting up programs or, or what else? Yeah, that's a great question. So, Education and empowerment includes something that you just mentioned. I think like having like a course is very important. And we on our advisory board actually have vets. We have lawyers. We have physicians. Uh, we have a lot of scholars and academics. So we, we are trying to build the movement by bringing over literally 200 years of experience, combined experience in all these different fields and give it to students. So lectures is one thing. So just tomorrow, we have Dr. Michael Clapper coming to UT Austin to talk to medical students about plant-based diet and nutrition and preventive medicine. And the way we do it is it's organized at the medical school. So we are trying to bring this education to future physicians, but we advertise the event and the event is open to all students, whether they're vegan, whether they're not vegan. And the event is not even advertised as a vegan event. So it's like open to everybody. They come and learn how to prevent top causes of death. So we have that. We just had another event with Dr. Milton Mills on food injustice. I saw that you interviewed him for your podcast. He was very recently on the podcast. Yes. Yeah, so we just had like a national event virtual with all universities that we are helping with Dr. Milton Mills to talk about food injustice. Uh, so yeah, empowerment and education includes that, as well as activating vegans. So these are basically workshops that we train vegans how to talk about veganism, how to choose careers that are impactful. And another part of it is also vegans are told to stay quiet. <laughs> That's for sure. Right? <laughs> and some of us might have been in, in the movement longer, and so we 
have found their voice. But when you're talking about younger generation, especially they're being told that they're isolated, they're told that don't be rude, don't speak up, you know. So we really want to bring that up and encourage students to use, find their voice and use it and put it in action, whether it's through, you know, doing activism or whether it's through careers. And we really want to support them throughout the entire thing. So yeah, education and empowerment is, that's what it's about. So to bring environmental education, plant-based nutrition education, workshops about veganism and all of that to universities. When you think about it, most of these students, of course, haven't been vegan for very long, probably because their kids haven't been anything for all that long. And they probably came to it. And it's understandable when you're first starting out in something, if you're a relatively modest person, to not think of yourself as an expert. But they have to understand that they're not the experts because there just aren't that many. And and they know a lot more about this than other people. So I agree. Like There's so much discouragement of vegans uh, speaking up and just offering their opinions. You know, that joke, I just can't hear it too many times. How do you know somebody's a vegan? They'll tell you. I like, People tell me stuff all the time. Like, why shouldn't they tell you? So, but aside from being willing to speak up, what other tips do you give students in being effective in advocating for veganism? I, and taking into account that everybody has their own style, so there's no absolutely one way to do it. But what are your general tips? Absolutely. So something I mentioned earlier is we can both change individuals and change the system. So when you're talking about changing individuals, one way is to go on the street and just leaflet random strangers, right? And they go about their day, maybe they become vegan or maybe not. But that's a very different story when you do advocacy on college campuses and when you make new vegans in universities and when you make vegans in universities understand the urgency of veganism. So the pro in this case, is that now they have their entire career in front of them where they can go and become the future Cory Bookers, Dr. Kim Williams, Eric Adams, people who can go become future lawyers, future politicians. But a lot of them don't even know how urgent this problem is, and they don't know that they can use their careers in a way that is relevant to animal advocacy. So they can pursue their passion at the same time, do something that is very meaningful. And generally, every time I have a talk, something that I always emphasize is that no matter what you're working on, whether it's environment, whether it's public health, whether it's biomedical sciences, you name it, the root cause is animal consumption. So you can make it relevant. So if you're working on pandemics, I would say there is tons and tons of people working on drugs what no one is working on is, hey, these pandemics are caused by animal consumption. So you can dedicate your career on that. Pursuing public health, pursuing medicine, become the future, I don't know, Michael Clapper, right? So that's a goal to not only change individuals, but also change the system at the same time. It's a long-term investment, but it's completely lacking right now. And we need to have that infrastructure. Yeah, no, there, people are so naive about animal agriculture. It boggles the mind. So you said you want, like, I guess you want every university to have an ASAP chapter. But what kind of rules are there? Like if somebody wants to set up an ASAP chapter at their university, 
What would be the requirements for membership in the chapter? And what kind of infrastructure support does your organization offer? And what do they need to do on their own? That's a very good question. So generally, the process starts by them contacting us. And all it really takes is one or two students who have that fire. That's all it takes, really, to do something meaningful on, com- on campuses. So we have bylaws. We have all the structures set in place. Because we are a student organization, every university has kind of a, l- a lot of different rules. For instance, some require faculty advisors, some don't, etc. So we basically help them to get this information. We support them throughout the process to get it registered. And then the club is open to vegans and non-vegans, but definitely people who run the club typically happen to be vegans because who else would go out of their way to fight for animals? So what kind of infrastructure support do you provide? Do you help them find speakers? What do you do about this problem of, you know, the best person is graduating, who's coming up next? You had mentioned earlier that you might even be helping students find or at least identify careers. Are those all things that the main organization is planning on doing for chapters? Absolutely. So for careers, we definitely have uh, seminars and workshops to talk to students about it. But the way that this becomes sustainable, which is the problem that it's not right now, is because there is no outreach. So I tell you, right now in the U.S., maybe there is like three or four student organizations that do animal rights student organization that do any kind of outreach whatsoever. And even when they do, it's generally different things. Some do cage-free campaigns, some do different focuses. The rest of them, if they do anything at all, is generally like potlucks, right? So with potlucks and going to a restaurant and things like that, you're not going to make new members. right? And that's why outreach is so critical. So we basically support them to have these outreach events. Generally, the way it works is that we give students choices. So we give them some options of the types of events that they can have. And then we support them. We do all the graphic design for them. We give them money. If there is free food, we provide free food. uh, So they don't have to do graphic design. We just make it so easy for them. So all they have to do is to attend and basically get it done. Because that's another problem that we saw. Students get busy, then there is like this break, yeah. that break, summer, and exams. It's just, yeah, <laughs> exams, and it just doesn't work, right? So we want to make it so easy for them and give them the guidelines. And other thing is we really want to have a person like boots on the ground. That's the difference. So we don't want to guide students virtually, but we want to have boots on the ground So someone from ASAP would be local in that area to actually go to universities and help these students. Because when you do it virtually, a lot of times you lose that connection with the students. And that's why a lot of other organizations, like animal rights organizations that want to work with universities, can't be as effective because they can't make those connections like virtually, right? Yeah. So I just give you one example. We did one week of events at UT Austin just last month. It was called the Save Week. So Save Environment, People, and Animals. That's what it is. We were on campus every single day for eight hours for an entire week in the most crowded place at UT Austin. And UT Austin has like 40,000 students, right? So that's how many eyes we captured. 
And then we had different events. One of them was uh, debate. You can't say you love animals, I need them too. And a lot of students came by and see what's going on. One of them that I honestly didn't think it would do that well, but it just, it went crazy. And I want to replicate that in other universities is Elwood's dog meat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was amazing how many people stopped by, how many people changed on spot. Wow. We literally had, yeah, we had somebody who was like, who actually came and started, he got really upset for a couple of seconds. And the moment he realized what was going on, he actually became vegan. We're going to share that video. So you look for it on my YouTube. And it, I, probably most people are familiar with Elwood's dog means, but just explain a little bit. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it's, I've seen her on Twitter and she's a social media personality and she just constantly is advertising the meat as if she has a dog meat company and she gets so much pushback from people. And of course it's all a spoof. Yeah. It's a, it's a complete satire. So a lot of people get upset, but the whole point is if you're upset about dog meat, why are you consuming other animal products? Yeah. But even on her website, her name is Molly and she's fantastic. On her website, if you go on the surface, it's all about dog meat, but there is like a frequently asked questions, then it actually tells you that this is satire and all that. Right. But we had a very good setup. We had like tents. So we, we were the biggest student organization on campus. We had tents, we had like banners with dog meat and students were posting this on Reddit and it was like all over the journals wrote about it in universities. It was like all over the place. Everyone was talking about it. And having done this for a week, we came across like thousands upon thousands of students and we captured some like 40 vegans who actually showed up in our event 40 students is a lot. If, if you think about like student organizations for vegans, it's generally like 10 just from this week. So that's what we want. And then we want to replicate that in other universities. I was actually just on a tour in MIT, Harvard, Columbia University. We were talking to students and I think we're going to replicate this in those universities as well. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask you, because obviously Austin is where you are and presumably some other people who you're working with. And so Obviously, that's the place you start, and it sounds amazing, but it's more difficult to imagine, you know, how you're going to grow this to the extent it really needs to grow. So are you finding people in each of these cities who's interested in being the ASAP pioneer and, and putting it all together? Absolutely. We started from Texas because two reasons. It's actually home, so we get to be there in person. But second, also Texas is very neglected because a lot of animal advocacy happens in East and West Coast, right? And there is almost none going on in Texas, while Texas has some of the biggest and best universities in the country. So right now we are at UT Austin, Texas Tech University. We are starting a chapter at Texas A&M. And with a few other universities, we are going to cover basically a large population of students in the country just from Texas. But the idea is, yes, we are gonna, we already have other people, other volunteers and part-time employees in New York City. So sometimes we travel, sometimes we actually bring the team here. So for the events that we did at UT Austin, we actually brought other people from other cities that worked with us. And we all came to one place at UT Austin. And that's why it was such a huge success. Wow. So that's what we want to do. We want to support 
students, like literally physically. So it's not just going to be virtual help and, you know, mentorship. It's going to be physical help. I'm so excited about this. And, you know, so often we've heard of good ideas and they start out good ideas and then, and then they don't make it. I mean, I just really want this to, you know, that moment of building the infrastructure, of building it up, of making it big. That's a moment where, you know, both companies selling foods, everything. There's that moment when, when you have to grow that is really hard. And it sounds like you're up for it. I'm really rooting for it. You've talked about focusing both on short-term and long-term changes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. The short-term changes would be basically we grow the community, vegan community in universities. So this is going to happen between a year to five years from now. So we keep having establishing ASAP chapters in different universities. We grow the vegan community. And the result of that, the direct result is we're going to make new vegans and find existing vegans and bring them together. So that's the short-term effect. The long-term effect is basically what the Federalist Society has done, right? So we really want these people then go to places like FDA, USDA, become federal judges, become future lawyers and politicians. And I also have a position at GFI, Good Food Institute, as a, a bioprocessing senior scientist. Part of my job is basically working on cultivated meat as a scientist. But we need more scientists like right. that, right? Right. So that's another way that we are active. So the long-term effect would be producing more people like myself who become future scientists, future physicians, whatever they want to do. So that's why I think the way that we can change the system is by investing in the young generation, Yeah. right? So far, I think we are wasting, in my opinion, a lot of resources to change the system, but there is a lot of pushback because... The system itself is not vegan friendly. None of the politicians, except very few, is vegan friendly, right? So, of course, what we are doing is a little more long-term, but it's going to make everything so much easier. When these people, and just think about it, when we do that with Harvard, MIT, Brown, A&M, UT Austin, many of these students 10 years from now are going to have yeah. powerful positions, whether we like it or not, right? So if you can influence them, if you can train them, that's how we can change the system long term. Yeah, it's really such an important goal. It's very easy to say, well, we can't just go for individual change. We have to change the system. But you can't change the system if you don't have a movement that is effective. Like, how would you do that? I, I The next thing I wanted to talk about was your position at GFI. And, and I was wondering what bioprocessing senior scientists meant. You sort of mentioned you're working on cultivated meat. Can you give us a little bit more without confusing us completely? <laughs> yes. Uh, so basically, the current challenge with alternative proteins, let me tell you this first. Uh, I guess alternative proteins is basically categorized to three things. One is plant-based foods or plant-based proteins. We're familiar with that, Beyond Meat, Impossible Meat, all that, Gardein. Then you have fermented products that is egg or dairy that is animal-free. And the third category is cultivated meat, aka lab-grown meat. So we don't call it lab-grown meat because it really doesn't come from labs. So when I say cultivated meat, that's what it is. So my focus is mainly on cultivated meat. And 
In my position, we are looking at technical and scientific challenges that are holding us back. So we are trying to see how we can reach to the scale to replace meat because we can produce cultivated meat. Okay, you know we are already there scientifically. The problem, the challenge, is to scale up, and that's where my right. area of expertise is. That's so the exact same problem with your organization. Every that's always the problem. It's one thing to have up. a good idea, but scaling up. But you're absolutely right when you mentioned, I know that I have a big mission ahead of me, but I can tell you that I ran my own student organization for six years during my master's and doctorate, and I didn't have any support, barely had support, had to figure a lot of things by myself, wasted time. And as much as I tried, the moment I graduated, everything died down. And it yeah. was like my baby, yeah. right? So I'm sitting here very frustrated because it's a very personal issue yeah. to me. And I see it as one of the biggest things that our movement has missed. And that's why I know it's a big goal, but I, all I can tell you is that I'm going to fix it or die trying. There is no, that's how much I believe well, that. I, this, I hope you this fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> Well, get back to, I interrupted you. You were talking about not the scaling up of ASAP, but the scaling up of cultivated meat. We keep hearing two years. We've been hearing two years for 10 years. Yeah, I think it's fair to expect cultivated meat to become available in very certain, like specific restaurants, you know, higher end restaurants for people to try within a year or two. But that's not really what we're talking about, right? right? We want to replace meat. And for that, there are really serious challenges that we have to overcome in terms of scaling and cost. So scaling is fine, but when you scale up, it generally becomes costly. And the main issue here is we are using pharmaceutical grade material. And in pharma, everything is very expensive and there is very different standards for for pharmaceutical grade material because they're going to go inside somebody's blood, right? But with food grade material, to make it really simple, imagine if a beer or a wine company was using pharmaceutical grade material, then, you know, the cost of beer would be probably, I don't know, $20 or $40 per bottle. So right now what we are doing is we are using pharmaceutical grade equipment for cultivated meat, but cultivated meat is going to be used for its food, right? So we need something that is food grade, but these specifications are not really set in place yet. And the equipments that we are using are all for pharmaceutical companies. So there is a degree of engineers have to come reinvent some of these okay. technologies for the purpose of cultivated meat we change the specifications and so many other things. It's not a problem that we can't solve. I personally, when I think about it, like if we put a man on the moon, this is not a scientific challenge that we can't fix. It's all a matter of when. Right. And we just okay. need more investment by the government, more investment by donors, etc. Well, Well, that sounds relatively hopeful, but also realistic. So that's very helpful. 
before I, I let you go, I just want to talk about your own past because you have this pretty interesting trajectory from the research I did before I interviewed, which I'm going to put it in a nutshell. You went from chemical engineering to cancer to veganism to animals. Does that capture your, your life story? And can you just expand on it a little bit if so? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it took a couple of turns in my career. I would say maybe I didn't have the right answer for a long time, but I had the right question, which was, how can I do the best, the most impactful thing in my life? And when I was working as a chemical engineer, you know, I was very concerned about the environment. Then I was a clinic clown, so I used to go to hospitals and play music for patients suffering from cancer. And that motivated me to do cancer research because, again, I asked myself, hey, I want to do something more meaningful. I want to save lives. But then, you know, I realized that 40% of cancers are preventable and you're not talking about that. Then I became vegan and I realized even if I wanted to save people, the most number of people, I still have to focus on veganism. Not that veganism is just about like human health. Of course, the main focus is animals. And that's another thing. When I learned about the scale and depth of suffering, that our food system is causing, there is nothing like that. Yeah. So if the question for me is, how can I save the most number of lives? How can I reduce the most amount of suffering in the world? The answer is just veganism, promoting veganism. And especially given the environmental impact, given the public health issues, antibiotic resistance, pandemics, I think... Every time that we have a little meat, a little cheese, a little dairy, we become more and more responsible for the future pandemics, for the future global issues. And because of that, I think there is just a lot of people working on the temporary solutions, working on bandages, but really the root cause of all of that is animal consumption. And that's why I think no matter what you're interested in, whether you're a filmmaker, artist, Students, you can always use your careers to tackle these issues through veganism. Animal consumption is a root cause of a lot of these diseases. That's yeah. why I'm so passionate about this. I always say, show me something that is more impactful. I will quit my job today. I will go do that. But there is not. I couldn't agree more. And I really, you stated it so profoundly. And I'm really glad that, that, given all of your experiences and all of different roads that you started to go down, that this is the road that obviously opened up and said, oh my God, <laughs> it's like, we have to fix this. It's at the root of so much evil. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for joining us today on our Hen House. I'm super excited. You have to make this work because I'm so super excited about it. It's just so, like until, I think I said this at the beginning of the interview, but I'm going to repeat it. There's some things that until somebody says, this is what we need, it never occurred to you that this is what we need, but this is so definitely what we need. So really, really important. Where Tell me where people can find out more about you and, and about your work. So if uh, any students or anyone needs help, I always say I'm here to help. So Twitter would be one good way. It's uh, Dr. Faraz Harsini or throughout our website, which is alliedscholars.org. But we are in other social media. I'm sure you're going to post it. Yeah, we'll post it in the show notes. Yeah. I have to say, it's. Uh, I've been asking myself, how can I help our movement? What is that thing that no one else is doing? 
And I finally found it. And it's such a big gap in our movement. I can't even believe how we missed it. That's why I'm so passionate about it. And something else I kind of wanted to touch based on is I guess I talked about the environment. I talked about public health. But it's also, I think, I see what we do to animals as a root cause of human oppression as well. Because the reason that we oppress other people, it's always because we focus on our differences. Like when you look back in history, we see we focus on our difference between our races, our languages, our cultures, our religions. And by focusing on that, we lost empathy. And that's how we justify doing terrible things to each other from genocides to so many other terrible things that we've done. And I see that to be the problem with animal rights and with speciesism. And that's why I think it's a moral urgency of our time. I do care about so many other causes. I'm LGBT myself. I'm from Iran. I can't actually go back to my home country because I get killed. But I see what we are doing to animals as something that is literally in another level. Because if I go on the streets and tell people, do LGBT folks deserve rights? Everyone says yes. If we say, do you really think like a black and white person, they have the same rights? Most people agree that they do. No one is going to question a black and white person. They feel pain differently. But in today's world, we have to be on the streets talking about plants' feelings versus like other mammals, like cow versus... That's how people ridicule veganism. And that's why it's a moral urgency. And I see it as a root cause of other forms of oppression as well. I couldn't agree with you more. Really, it, it is in so many ways. Well, maybe it's not the root of all evil because humans are capable of coming up with a lot of evil, but it's the root of a lot of it. I'm just going to ask you one more question because I, I read that you said once that your values haven't changed since before you were vegan. You're just no longer a hypocrite. And having experienced this personally, as you know, a lot of us have, how do you explain that so many really good people, really, really good people who do great things much better than I've ever done in my life and who don't think of themselves as hypocrites just don't get it about animals. and Or they do care about animals. They just don't get it that they're supposed to do something about it. Or just simply, they just don't get that they're supposed to not eat them. Like, it perplexes me. I ask this question of so many people, and I don't really expect there to be an answer. I'm just interested in people's thoughts on it. I'm not sure there is an answer, but I just think it's so important for us to think about this. What is it that's missing? Yeah. Uh, you know, I always thought of myself as a caring person. Yeah. I fought for human rights and almost got killed in protests. And then, you know, one day my friends held me accountable, said for us, you say you love animals, but you eat them. And, you know, note that I was mad at my friend. She was, by the way, she said that in the nicest way, and I still got upset. Yeah. <laughs> so that tells you that we shouldn't really be worried about upsetting people because they're not upset at us. You can be the nicest person, say the truth, they get upset. Yeah. But to start fire, you need a spark. And sometimes you need friction to start that spark. And sometimes by us speaking the truth, it's that spark. So people may get upset on the surface, but they will change a lot of times, as I did. And I hear this story over and over, which is why it's so important for all vegans to always speak up, 
to always speak up. Every situation is an opportunity to speak up about veganism. Something that I really want to share with this audience is a lot of times we lose the courage, especially when it comes to friends, when it comes to relationships, or for some people who are not vegan, they go to a birthday party and the cake is not vegan. And, you know, under social pressure and all that, we bend and we have the little cake that is not vegan. Or maybe you're on a plane, the only food that is provided to you is not vegan. Of course, if you, whether you eat that or not, you're not going to save an actual animal because, you know, whatever happened right. has already happened. But it's important to realize every time we contribute to this, we normalize animal consumption. And every time we publicly reject, that's an opportunity for someone else to see that, oh, what's going on? Why did you reject it? That's an opportunity to educate. I just want to say that I know people who literally started businesses, vegan businesses, vegan restaurants, became activists just because one day, years ago, somebody in front of them rejected animal products. So don't underestimate the power that every one of us has and the snowball effect because you become vegan, you stand, you maintain your ground, you speak about it, and someone else learns from you. Just because I speak up, I get so many emails, so many messages from students, from other people. Hey, you said this thing, I, I became vegan. Well, I guess more people know me and that's why they write to me, but know that this happens with literally all of us when we speak up. So I just want to say, please don't lose that courage. I know sometimes it's hard. I know we are in minority, but if you don't know what to do, just think about what we do to animals as a social justice movement, as something that is injustice and ask yourself, what would you do if this was another form of injustice, right? Like we, we may put up with a friend, with a partner, I don't know, for not being vegan, but we would not do that with any other form of injustice. This is not to say that we should be rude to others. It's just to say that we should keep that in mind, that this is a big injustice and we just have to do something about it. All I say is that in the face of injustice, silence is not an option. So whatever we are going to do, is, sometimes it's friendly, sometimes it's being rude, whatever it is, I don't care. It might vary based on the situation, but yeah. the important thing is to speak up. Just do something, say something. Absolutely. And sometimes the more somebody is pushing back, as you said, you were with your friend, the more somebody is pushing back and getting annoyed with you, that might mean that you're having an impact. The person who's just like, oh, yeah, that's great. Good for you. They probably haven't heard you at all. So it's not something to worry about. I say to my students, like, because a lot of them aren't vegan coming into the class and they're struggling when they find out what's going on. And I say, if you can't be vegan all the time, just be vegan out of the house where people can see you and you can talk about it. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Passionate, passionate talk from you. I've really enjoyed hearing it. Thank you so much for us, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org.
anxiety surprising. Our first story is from our favorite commentator, that's Hannah Thompson Weeman, who is, of course, now the president and CEO of the Animal Agriculture Alliance. And she's uh, the columnist who has been reporting for a long time on Animal Ag Watch, uh, which means that she's she's basically reporting on us, uh, the activist community. And she always has to like tread this fine line of of like, we're winning, but this is a really big danger, so you better pay attention to me. Uh, anyway, this week she's reporting on uh, the Direct Action Everywhere conference in California. The title of the column is Activists Amp Up Plans for, quote, Open Rescue. And as she pointed out, the conference, which, you know, a lot of what she's saying here is just true. The conference was focused on the right to rescue and uh, she says, quote, most speakers at the conference tied their content back to the right to rescue, including many references to the recent and upcoming trials stemming from previous open rescues. Entering, what she defines as entering farms and plants and stealing livestock and poultry. Of course, the purpose of the trials is to find out whether it was stealing livestock and poultry, or as I like to call them, pigs and chickens. But, you know, for her, it's a foregone conclusion. One panel, she says, included a juror who served on one of the trials who discussed the jury's decision to find activists, quote, not guilty, <laughs> to put it in quotes, <laughs> despite there being, she points out, no dispute of the fact that they did enter property and take animals without permission. Uh, yeah, they had a defense. <laughs> That's what the trial was about. The juror stated, according to Hannah, to me, the case was blatantly obvious. You had a little bit more swagger in your step and you were well prepared. And she goes on and on in that vein, you know, for a couple of sentences. You know, she was talking to the DXE folks. So Hannah leaves it to believe that that's all that the juror said. I can't imagine that the juror got up and said nothing, but yeah, I was there and and the DXE People had a swagger in their step and seemed confident. So that's why I voted not killed. There was probably a few other things she said about the case, but no. Hannah says, cases being decided based on swagger should probably be a concern for the animal agriculture community going forward, as the emotion and passion of activists might play better than facts to juries who are most likely themselves not very informed about animal agriculture. Well, interesting, right? She does recognize the emotion and passion of the activists can have an effect on these jurors, which I'm sure is true. And I think these jurors probably learned a bit about animal agriculture by being at this trial. They're not very informed. And as soon as they find out, they're horrified, Hannah. Uh, and according, there was also a panel on pressure campaigns. She likes to call them pressure campaigns. According to the pressure campaign workshop, individual campaign goals are small and tangible. Well, that makes total sense, such as stopping a slaughterhouse from being built, getting a company to drop fur, getting an animal relocated to a sanctuary from a zoo. That totally makes sense. And, you know, of course, if you're going to, like, go after a company, for it has to be a, a doable thing and not too big uh, and, and something that can be accomplished. But, she points out, they tie up to a bigger picture visions, such as a world without slaughterhouses, a world where animals are not exploited for fur, and a world where zoos have been shut down. Exactly. You know, as is so often the case, the meat industry is the only people who know what the animal activists are really doing. We understand each other. We may not like each other, but we understand each other. Uh, she also talked about the fact that the conference included various, quote, direct actions. She refers specifically to the one she considers the most concerning, 
uh, which targeted a poultry processing facility, i.e. a slaughterhouse, poultry processing, in Sonoma County that has been previously a focus of DXC efforts. Activists arrived at the plant around 2 a.m. local time. Oh, God bless them. And a small group entered the plant and stole birds, while others remained outside for around four hours demonstrating. Don't you just love these people? I mean, don't you just love them? The protest then moved on to the Sonoma County District Attorney's Office as they called upon her to prosecute the plant and its contract growers for alleged animal cruelty. That is just really, really good. Not just at the plant, but, at, you know, somebody who could do something about it, but of course isn't going to. In the final action of the event, conference attendees protested at a local grocery chain that they claim sources chicken from the plant, really, really tying the whole thing together. I can't believe she's just telling this whole story, and it's so good, uh, but she thinks it's so bad. So she's talking about also an open rescue experience workshop that they had that was a centerpiece of, of the conference and that she feels that everybody should be very concerned. Farms, plants, plants is what they call slaughterhouses, or sometimes they call factory farms plants, but I think she's talking about slaughterhouses. Isn't it odd that they call them all plants? Research facilities and all other locations housing animals should be on alert for newly, quote, trained, unquote, activists to attempt to conduct, quote, investigation, unquote, and, quote, rescue, unquote, efforts. She loves quotes. <laughs> she likes to make sure that you understand she doesn't approve. That's her, why she uses quotes. All right. As part of pressure campaigns targeting brands, legislators, and other key decision makers. Well, I learned a lot about that conference from that column, so I'm very grateful. All right. This is from whatpoultry.com. An opportunity to redefine factory farming. Now, unfortunately, this writer, Roy Graber, is not talking about changing what they do on factory farms. He's talking about changing the way the word factory farm is used. He starts out, if you are involved in agriculture, you probably dislike the phrase factory farming. Yeah, I'm sure you do. It's an insult. <laughs> Good intuition, right? And one of the problems that he thinks is it makes it so cringy is that it really doesn't mean anything. Uh, yeah, it does. It means having animals living in a facility as if they were widgets in a factory and not taking care of any of their needs. It's, but no, it's just a derogatory label that tries to, and so to some degree succeeds to, yeah, it does, lead the everyday food consumer to think that larger scale animal agriculture is a bad thing. God forbid we should think that factory farming is a bad thing. Yet when you think about it, if you were to ask someone what factory farming was, the odds are pretty good that the answer would be something like, well, it's factory farming. What? <laughs> See, his point being that people can't define it. You know, come to me, Ray. I can define it, but a lot of people can. You know, it kind of defines itself. That's why it's such a brilliant term. All right. So he's talking about this podcast he listened to uh, and, and in, in it, uh, some good points were made. And one of the hosts said of the facilities where cultured meat is produced, this is literally a factory farm. People love to bash factory farming. And this is literally a factory making your meat. No, it's not. I mean, it is a factory making your meat. Though I prefer the term brewery. I do think it's a lot more attractive than factory. But I think, you know, factory is not necessarily wrong. The point is, it's not a farm. There are no living animals there. So it's not a farm. They're not growing anything. 
Uh, they they get the the materials that are grown from from actual farms, and they bring it there, and they process it. So it is much like a factory, though. As I said, I prefer the term brewery because it's more closely aligned to a food system kind of uh, facility. He thinks this is so brilliant. When you hear someone say factory farming, you can jump in on the conversation and ask what they mean by that. When they offer their definition, you could say, oh, well, cultured meat could also be defined as factory farming and explain why that is the case. <laughs> that's that's really the get him. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He thinks the problem with factory farming is the word factory farming. That that's the only problem. Even if doing so doesn't officially change the definition, officially, who officially changes the definition? Adding another definition can create conversations. Yeah, actually, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe we should use that tech. It can get people to thinking and give you an opportunity to talk about the good in meat from farm-raised animals. No, factory farm-raised animals is what you're talking about. The good in meat from farm-raised animals and the reasons to be concerned with meat created through cell cultivation. Yeah, it doesn't give you one reason to be concerned about it. Like, it's just a word. Hi. All right, this is a pretty interesting story. This is from Hordes, uh, Dairy Horde. Dairy Hoarding, I think. Dairy Horde or something like that. The URL is hordes.com. The backstory on dumped tankers of milk. Apparently, this was a big story in Wisconsin, Milwaukee specifically. And truckloads of fresh farm milk, you know, uh, fresh farm milk, that's what they like to call it, are dumped into Milwaukee's sewerage system. I guess it is a point to call it fresh because this is not milk that had gone bad. This is milk where they didn't have any place to sell it. And according to this article, while the journalists called the problem a glut of farm milk, and rightfully so, nearly every media outlet missed the larger story people, more specifically labor shortages. And he's most of the milk apparently that is produced by these poor benighted cows in Wisconsin is used in cheese, uh, as dairy cheese, not good cheese. It's people power that has prevented one swilling cheesemakers from taking spot loads. Spot loads are these is a specific industry term for, you know, it's not a regular, it's not a regular delivery. It's it's a spot delivery. If cheesemakers had people to work the extra shifts during the weekends and nights, that extra milk during June Dairy Month would not have been hitting sewer pipes. All right, hold the phone here. This is something that they're constantly talking about, is labor shortages. And I think that we constantly have to make the point that if you pay people enough to do things, you don't have labor shortages. The problem is, is then then you won't be able to sell your product because people don't really want your product and they're not going to pay more for it. But if they, if if your product is so important, maybe you should charge people what it costs to produce it, and then they would not buy it. But if you're not willing to pay workers the the amount of money they require in order to do this hideous work, then yeah, you're going to have extra milk and nobody's going to, uh, and you're going to have to dump it. Remember, he says, in Wisconsin alone, there are over 300 licensed dairy processing plants. Nearly every one of them has a dearth of labor. Pay people, but they can't. They can't because they can't increase the price because uh, nobody will buy it. The production, the production itself needs to be understood because milk solids production is a more reliable indicator of the aggregate supply of dairy products available in the markets, and that's up 1.1% during the first third of the year. 
That is their reason for this. Do you understand it? I don't understand it. Like, it's bullshit. Let's face it. Like, they have too much, they produce too much milk. While it is awful, the lost milk to sewerage systems should be a short-term predicament. Yeah, that's what they've been saying for a long time. And they still have too much milk, too much milk, too much milk. And if you wonder whether they have too much cheese, just Google cheese stored under Missouri and you will be shocked because it's a hell of a lot of cheese stored under Missouri. The things we do to keep, with our tax dollars, to keep dairy farms in business. And I kind of wonder, I you know, I did do a little research, but I couldn't figure out the answer. Do these dairy farmers who are dumping this milk in Milwaukee's uh, sewerage facilities, therefore, and do they have to pay to use those sewerage facilities? I mean, this, do the citizens of Milwaukee have to pay to for their extra dumping that they're putting into their sewers? But anyway, is there a way they're making money off of that anyway? Because the implication is they're not. But, you know, there's so many ways that people in animal agriculture make money. And it isn't just, you know, from the consumer uh, because they need to keep those consumer dollars low. So there's lots of other lots of other income trails. I wonder whether this particular practice has an income trail as well. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 